This is Politics Part 6, The Politics of Hate, Lovecraft Country, and the Cthulhu of the Black Planet. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln said that on June 16, 1858, after he'd accepted the Illinois Republican Party nomination to become a U.S. Senator, before he would eventually become the 16th President of the United States on March 4, 1861. But when he said that, he wasn't actually saying that slavery should be ended. He was just saying that it needed to be settled one way or the other. We know that Abraham Lincoln wanted to end slavery because he started the Civil War the month after he was elected on April 12, 1861. But he was saying the same thing that Mr. Miyagi, the Pat Morita version from the 1980s, the same thing that Mr. Miyagi said to Daniel LaRusso. He said, You karate, yes, okay. You karate, no, okay, too. You karate, so, so. Just right grape. But I started thinking about why Lincoln didn't come right out and admit that he wanted to end slavery right away. And the answer is, he might not have been elected. And then I thought about George Washington. He set all his slaves free and gave everything he'd accumulated in his life to his freed slaves. He let them live at Mount Vernon, his estate, and made sure his fortune was dedicated, after Martha died, that is, so that every one of his slaves could be free, could stay at Mount Vernon, could be taken care of, clothed, fed, educated, and gainfully employed. So why didn't George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, when he was running for Senate, stand up and say, let's abolish slavery? Took me about two seconds to realize that if Washington had tried that, the Union wouldn't have had the strength to subordinate the South. And the South would immediately have split away from the Union along the Mason-Dixon line. And the Confederate States of America would have been born at the end of the American Revolution. And slavery would have been permanently anchored in Florida, Georgia, Virginia, the Carolinas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Missouri, Texas, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Nebraska, and Tennessee. The Confederacy would have begun as a permanent slave nation that would have had time to rally and entrench its military defense of slavery. And with control of much of the best farmland and the South's oil reserves, I hate to think how terrible that would have been. It was the devil's bargain, though, because in order to keep the Union together, slavery had to be tolerated until the United States military was strong enough to force the southern states to give up slavery. So the United States officially tolerated slavery from 1789 till the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862. But the truth is, is that slavery had existed in Jamestown, Virginia since 1619, so officially 73 years. But realistically, slavery had been going on in the United States for about 243 years. And there's so much there that I could fill up 100 podcast episodes or more and not even scratch the surface. But when Lincoln said a house divided against itself cannot stand, he was right. It was true then and is true now. And we're facing complicated threats from all over the world now. There are foreign national powers who would see us weakened so that they could expand. And I'm talking, of course, about Russia and China. And the division in our house is obviously the two political parties on the left and right that we have. And this deserves way more episodes than I'm putting into it right now. That division is overlaying the racial divide that parses people even further. People of color and white people 
And there's a third overlay, an economic one, where the people who are ultra-rich have lobbied and bribed U.S. lawmakers into creating policy and starting wars and controlling the media to gerrymander the voting district so they can stay rich and stay in power. But there's actually further subdivision from within the left and the right. And on the right side, you have your traditional Republicans, who are typically middle and upper class fiscal conservatives. But within the right, there are radical, typically uneducated cultists, white trash, less educated, more rural whites, whose communities were conceived in the Jim Crow era and whose populations are still bereft of diversity and adrift in racist inertia. And over the last four decades have seen their jobs exported overseas by the oligarchy that controls both the establishment Republicans and Democrats, and has seen their energy jobs, typically in the fossil fuel industry, dry up without compensation by the Democratic and Progressive Opposition Party that can't seem to figure out that environmental legislation can't be decoupled with mitigating policy to employ those workers who will lose their jobs to these environmental reforms. Now, Hillary Clinton, an unsuccessful 2016 presidential candidate, uh, coined the term deplorables to describe these people. And these were the deplorables that stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, in an attempt to assassinate the Republican vice president and Democratic legislatures with whom they disagreed. But that's really just a sideshow because the most dangerous activity being conducted by the establishment Republicans right now is at the state level, who know their party is fractured and are now struggling to gerrymander and enact voter suppression policy calculated to optimize their chances of re-election in 2022 and 2024. Now, on the left, you have your typical liberals and progressives who focus on issues of climate change and making sure that there are economic opportunities for everyone in the country. But also within the left, you have the true believer Democrats and progressives. And about half of the party are bought and paid for by the same ultra-rich, who control the traditional Republican. And you saw it happen right before your eyes during the Democratic primary, when it became clear that Bernie Sanders was going to run away with the Democratic primary nomination for the 2020 presidential race. It was right after the second or third debate, we all woke up and it was just Bernie and Biden. And then so the Democratic Party could leverage all of its influence to defeat Bernie Sanders again, the same way it did with the media blackout and the internal sabotage by the Democratic National Party under the leadership of Debbie Wasserman Schultz during the 2016 Democratic primary, who said in emails released by WikiLeaks, he isn't going to be president, referring to Bernie Sanders. And it's this Democrat lack of strategic vision to which Donald Trump owes his presidency. And even further division is transacting in the black community between what has become known as ADOS blacks, African descent of slavery blacks, and blacks who were just first or second generation who came in to live in America sometime after slavery, who bicker back and forth about who should or shouldn't get reparation payments that don't even exist for slavery if they ever come. So our whole country is fractured into binary opposing fractions Within those factions are more binary fractures. What's the common denominator in all of these fractures is that there are two opposing groups and neither of them seem to be willing or able to talk to each other. Now Lincoln said a house divided against itself cannot stand. He meant it, and that's why the Russians and the Chinese infiltrate our social media and pretend to be different sides of all these fractures and inflame and incite anger and publish cruel memes and inflammatory rhetoric with the sole purpose of keeping Americans pissed off at other Americans. 
And that's what they do. That's the politics of hate. Because if you want things to never change, then you need to get people fighting with each other. And that's why the wealthy elite conservative pits the poor rural conservative masses against immigrants, right? Imagine a table. There's a conservative elite oligarch in control of Fox News media in one chair and a rural, less educated white guy in another chair. And then there's an immigrant in the third chair. And there's $100 in the middle on the table. And when nobody's looking, the rich guy grabs 99 of those dollars and then points to the last guy on the table and shouts, don't let that immigrant take your dollar. Because if the conservative media didn't have the immigrant scapegoat to distract rural white conservatives, then conservative politicians might have to contend with their constituents who are pissed about not having their manufacturing jobs that were all shipped overseas. And we've seen this before. It's how the Nazis eliminated their political rivals back in the 30s. And there was this Lutheran pastor in the 1930s, and he spoke out against Hitler in Nazi Germany in this poem called First They Came. And it goes like this. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So believe it. There are oligarchs who want to split us apart and control our government so that they can stay rich and stay in power. And they do this through the politics of hate and control of the media. And oligarchs use mass media manipulation to get the masses on both the left and the right to fight each other. Then we'll always have a house divided against itself. It happens, and it's intentionally happening by the elites who control both the left and the right. And you saw it in spades in the 2016 primary where media blackouts and Democratic pundits either completely ignored Bernie while Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the Democratic National Party worked furiously to sabotage Bernie's 2016 primary campaign. And then in 2020, when the DNC realized Bernie was going to trounce all the Democratic candidates, so the party canceled all the campaigns except for Biden's. And the party was able to rally and defeat Sanders again. But it's not just on the left either. You see it every day in the conservative media, making masks in a pandemic a political issue of freedom from oppression and making up election fraud stories just to distract the people from the real-life problems facing them, like the pandemic. Now, QAnon, a joke of a shadow organization, which is certainly a cyber attack operation of China or Russia, accused Democrats of being sex offenders and sex traffickers in the 2020 presidential campaign. And it's now defending Representative Matt Gates, who's going to be facing sex trafficking charges. And everybody knows from his Venmo transfers that he conspired to pay kids for sex. In any case, make no mistake, we are a house divided unto itself initially perpetrated by a shadow oligarchy of extremely wealthy American interests who control both the establishment Republicans and the establishment Democrats. But now gasoline has been thrown on that fire with the coronavirus pandemic and enemy strategic cyber operations calculated to asymmetrically destabilize American politics. They sow fear and doubt about vaccines and tell stories to scare us into being too afraid to do the things that are common sense. So how do we do it? How do we defeat this enemy? It's easy. It's a piece of cake. We just need to stop hating each other. 
And if you're watching some news or you're reading some social media and it gets you mad, then change the channel or scroll away because it isn't going to change anything. If you read something on social media and it gets you mad, it's getting you mad because someone wants you to be mad. Someone is manipulating you into being mad. Someone thinks they can manipulate you enough to hate somebody you don't know, somebody you never met and never will, who most likely never existed at all. And they think they can distract you so you don't notice the things that they want you to miss. Establishment Democrats want you all to be mad at conservatives about the border crisis so you don't realize that your tax dollars pay for things like useless wars, big corporate payroll subsidies through public services for their workers and making starvation wages, and pay subsidies to fossil fuel industries and massively inflated drug prices to the pharmaceutical industry. Establishment Republicans want their rural conservatives to be mad about illegal immigration and climate change policy so they don't bother asking why their Republican leaders have let their manufacturing and energy jobs all die out. The answer is don't hate. The answer is stop worrying about what's happening with other people. Instead of writing a post on social media in anger about a meme, write your state and local representatives about what you want done for your benefit. What do you want for yourself and your family and your community? In this country, screaming at fellow citizens doesn't really do anything. Only screaming at your elected representatives or organizing against the interests of the oligarchs to boycott their products economically. The only thing the oligarchs and the politicians care about is money and power. So we use that to manipulate them. Cancel to motivate the oligarchs to do what you want and vote or threaten to vote to motivate the politicians. So now we're at the good part. Lovecraft Country. It's an HBO series directed by Misha Tate and produced by Jordan Peele in collaboration with J.J. Abrams, who produces major blockbuster popular films. You really feel their energy when you watch it. It's really, really good. It's about an ex-soldier in the 1930s, an H.P. Lovecraft fan who returns home after he receives a letter from his estranged father informing him that he may have some kind of legacy birthright that has been concealed from their family. The story is intertwined with the backdrop of H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu sci-fi literary universe, the ordinary world circa 1930, except for the secretive sorceress cult of Cthulhu devotees engaged in a clandestine conspiracy to awaken Cthulhu, a malevolent, psychic, octopus-faced, dragon-esque alien hibernating in an ancient city deep in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. Cthulhu's evil psychic powers, even though he's unconscious and in prison, continually emanate negative psychic radiation, and it is the source of all human anxiety and fear. And if you're familiar with Lovecraft, you know that there are several species of alien creatures enthralled to Cthulhu, and some of them have been awakened. The cultists unleash them on normal people in furtherance of their wicked schemes, which I haven't really read that much on, but I understand it makes his writing pretty terrifying. Lovecraft published The Call of Cthulhu in 1928, and in doing so probably became the godfather of the horror sci-fi genre. I'm not a huge fan, but I'm just telling you this because I don't want you to be distracted by the opening sequence when Cthulhu, an octopus-faced monster, tries to eat the main character's face, or the pack of multi-eyed vampire bears that come out at night later in the first show, also parallel with the pervasive Jim Crow American racial terrorism of that time. Think KKK coming out at night in white hoods with burning crosses. You'll see the parallels right away. 
The point is that the aura of racial abuse and oppression of black people is immediately palpable as you watch the series. You get a small taste of what it must feel like to be subjected to the mortal danger of pervasive institutional, societal, personal, racial terrorism. Now, Ashley is super emo, and I am an autistic psychopath. I factually realize this immediately, though, that every single person in most of the first episodes is black. And I mentioned that to Ashley, and she said that was probably why she felt excluded. I suspect that's part of the artistic design of the show. It leaves you with the same subconscious message of your own personal insignificance as a white person watching the show that black people must have experienced for generations where virtually all film actors were white. And then the whites are introduced. They are exclusively totally evil. And in Lovecraft's writings, Cthulhu is a supernatural creature like the devil and when these cultists all white and the rest of the white characters who are equally evil reveal themselves you begin to understand the meaning of the antique slur white devil i don't think that's an artistic coincidence i've come to think that this is the real artistic genius of misha tate's use of the hp lovecraft context in the show the show is abstract and weird at first but i think this is a great show for people to see especially white people and here's why it illustrates the difference between what it means to be white and intellectually admit the existence of white racism and to be white and experience a glimpse of what it might feel like when we collectively as the white race terrorized and continue to terrorize black Americans with the subconscious reckoning that only white people in the show, the only characters with whom white people racially identify, are all white devils too. And another facet of Tate's genius is that we have no reason to doubt and must admit that the generations of degradation, legal discrimination, Confederate statues and flags and segregation and Jim Crow, hate groups and white aggression and microaggression is nothing short of a legacy of genocide. And white homogeneity in the entertainment industry constantly bombarding black people with images of white celebrities and no black celebrities anywhere can only be psychologically toxic. And remember when I told you about Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, where Cthulhu slumbers deep in the Pacific Ocean, but his psychic powers radiate and are the source of all human anxiety. And that's when I understood Mishite's message. She's telling us, convincingly, she's telling me as a white person, that I am the black Cthulhu. I was hit in the face by Jackie Robinson's bat. I'm asleep at the bottom of the ocean, and while monsters and white supremacist cultists terrorize black Americans, and if I keep slumbering, I am allowing the continual terrorization of the black planet to continue. My inaction, or maybe my neutrality, me saying, oh, I'm colorblind, that kind of do-nothing mentality permits a persistent continuing racist inertia in this country and lets it continue. And if you're white and anyone who thinks they're colorblind and not racist, that is a problem. And that is a fact. The country was conceived in racism, which still persists today. The U.S. government conducted the Tuskegee syphilis experiments on 600 black men and only admitted to it as of 1997 by Bill Clinton on the eve of the end of his second term. Black people don't need white people to be colorblind. They need white people to see them as black people and see them as equals. And it's not enough to be colorblind because black people need to be seen. And the country is adrift in racist inertia and being colorblind or not doing anything overtly racist isn't enough. White people need to take steps to make things happen, to make things right and counteract alienation. And the genocide 
that was perpetuated by our families and our ancestors against them and theirs. Now, ultimately, I think Tate is trying to send white people, the Black Cthulhu, a wake-up call. I think that's why the main character wakes up from the opening dream sequence when Jackie Robinson, the first black Major League Baseball player, smashes Cthulhu in the face with a baseball bat. I'm sure that's an homage to Robinson's contribution to racial relations. And it's not a spoiler, it happens right at the beginning of the first episode. And I just didn't want you to spend any time trying to process why Jackie Robinson just hit you or Cthulhu in the face with a baseball bat. And eventually you'll see the main character through a series of events begins the series fearful of whites but slowly loses his fear of whites and becomes more and more willing to risk death and he becomes more and more willing to die to protect his family's future. And think about that. This is a very, very big deal. This is a very important message. Think about what was going on five years ago in 2016. Do you remember? Colin Kaepernick, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, started to kneel during football games when the American anthem was being played to protest police brutality in the black community. So yeah, five years ago, super peaceful demonstration doesn't work. And that is a fact. Didn't make a dent, did it? Black Lives Matter marchers start marching and then the McCluskeys start pointing guns at them and white kids shoot them with salt rifles and run them down in cars. So yeah, guess what? Marching isn't working either. And that too is a fact. Then when George Floyd is publicly executed by police in downtown Minneapolis, Minneapolis starts burning and Seattle autonomous zones are occupied and citizens riot and take over. And then things kind of start moving, don't they? So anytime I hear somebody talk about the need for nonviolent, peaceful demonstrations, then I think maybe you should have been paying attention back in 2016 when Kaepernick started kneeling down during the national anthem instead of calling him names like unpatriotic. Because violence seems pretty reasonable when kneeling and marching hasn't worked for five years. But like the pandemic, it's gonna get worse if we don't make it better fast. My advice is leaders, you better listen and start acting now. Not just when somebody makes you, but on your own initiative before rioters start bringing guns to the riots. Police officers, it's not enough that you aren't intentionally racist to not see color is to allow yourself to continue to drift in racist inertia. You must act to stop racist threats within the police force. You are personally responsible for being the one who pushes Derek Chauvin's in your ranks off of the necks of our citizens. You are responsible for cleaning them out of your ranks. And let's pray to God that you can do it before bereaved black mothers stop calling for peace and equality and start demanding revenge. Revenge.